As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Hello and welcome to the weekend preview on the Athletic Football Podcast sponsored by Bet365. I'm Ian Irving and each and every Friday we preview the best of the weekend's Premier League action. And this week we've got Bet365 Steve Threef alongside us to help as well. Hello Steve. Ian, how are you pal? You okay? Very good, thank you. You? Bit better than Manchester United pal, yeah. I can imagine, yes. <laughs> Normal host Dan Bardell, as you might have known by now, is a bit under the weather, so get well soon. Danny's not here, but his regular co-host George Elek is here. George, are you excited for the return of the Premier League then? Yeah, I, I enjoyed um, some parts of the international break. I, I thought the Nations League especially <laughs> were was good. I didn't enjoy so much going to England-Hungary on Tuesday night. Um, it oh. was... Yeah, it wasn't the best game. Uh, the light show before kickoff is probably the best part of the game itself. Um, yeah, interesting dynamic here because normally Steve and Dan are ribbing about their their Albion Villa, their rivalry there. So uh, interesting to see that Steve's already had a go at you for, for United when it's normally it's, it's normally me having a go at United on this podcast. But luckily, you're not playing on TV this weekend, so we won't talk about you. That's all right. I couldn't even tell you where West Brom are in the table, so it's not a problem. <laughs> Still in the Premier League. Or... You sound like Dan already, Ian. Don't worry about that. That's, that's exactly what he saves to me, and rightly so, and rightly so. Yeah, I've listened enough to know the level, so that's perfect. Let's get <laughs> the real rivalry here, though, is, you know, I'm an Oxford fan, and of course, Fergie's first game as United manager was a defeat at the Manor about five years before I was born. So there you go. That's the, that's the real history. <laughs> that's one to boast about, isn't it? Um, I think we should go back to what you were saying before, though, uh, and try and move this on rather than me just getting ribbed for like being here for five <laughs> minutes um the england game against hungary you said the most exciting thing about it was a light show i thought it was the starting lineup to be honest it all went wrong after that yeah it did um i think there were some issues with the lineup i i don't necessarily think that 4-3-3 would always be as toothless as it was i think going behind against a side like like hungary was always going to cause its problems because they, they in fairness to them they didn't sit back uh nil nil it wasn't the low block that we saw in the first half uh in the in the return leg or the other leg um but they were still very compact they looked to move the ball well when they when they were on the ball and it is it's just very difficult to break down a side who are in decent shape with a mid to low block as they were for as soon as they went one nil ahead you know they went ahead with the penalty on a different day 
um, Harry Kane had a header in the first half that normally, you know, a normal Harry Kane would have, would have buried. Southgate's decision to substitute Jack Grealish, who was quite clearly our most promising player on the day and, and the most threatening player, was the next line to add into a long list of, of occasions where Southgate seems to not see what everyone else sees when it comes to when you had Mason Mount, who has been short of fitness recently, but on the night looked way off it. You know, a lot of misplaced passes. And you've got Phil Foden, who played 90 minutes on the weekend against Andorra. It was a surprise to see Grealish, the one who made way for Saka, especially when he, you know, if you're going to play 4-3-3 with two attacking players either side of Rice and Foden's playing there, there's no reason why Grealish, who played there for a, a, a long spell uh, of Aston Villa, couldn't shift into that role and probably get him on the ball deeper where we had most possession anyway. So it was frustrating um, not to get the win. It's you know it's 18 games won in a row at Wembley for England in, in World Cup and Euro qualifiers ended. Um, but at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter because we're going to qualify anyway. Um, so who cares? Yeah, it had been a brilliant run for England, actually, wasn't it? Steve, you probably enjoyed that result from a bookmaker's perspective more than most, I imagine. <laughs> yeah, a coupon bustery, and yeah, one to ten they were, under two and a half goals, a, a centre-half scoring. And we've had a couple of decent results recently, actually, with that, you know, for England against Hungary and, and Poland as well. So, yeah, uh, definitely good for us. George is right, England will qualify. They're 750 to one on to top the group. And, is that uh, I mean. Yeah, that is yeah, yeah. Seven hundred and fifty pound on to win a pound, and and, and no, so there's no such thing as a free lunch, don't they? No, no, no exactly, exactly that. I think that's Gareth on the phone there. Um, so um, I mean, England seven to one in the outright market behind six to one joint favourites Brazil and France may surprise a few people after what we've seen from those from those teams over, over the last few days. Spain are seven to one, Italy tens with with Argentina and Belgium. Listen, let's not get carried away. Yes, I, I'd probably give that. Uh, that, that formation, another go. One thing's for sure though, Calvin Phillips's stock has certainly risen without him kicking a ball. It was amazing how quickly Southgate reverted to a back three as soon as we conceded. Like Off kickoff straight away, Walker came inside. Um, at the time, Foden was basically playing at right wing back. Immediately, he wanted to, to change it. So he basically picked a team, conceded a penalty and then very quickly the shape changed and it was kind of fluid throughout. So I don't think that 4-3-3 was really the shape throughout the game anyway. No, let's not depress ourselves any further about England then. Let's look ahead to the weekend. Before we get into the matches, though, I need to remind you that you can still sign up to The Athletic and get a 33% discount off access to the best newsroom in sport. I've had my calculator out and that's just £3.33 a month for the entire year. Just go to theathletic.com forward slash football pod. Okay, game one for us is the match that kicks us off and also kicks off the Premier League weekend. It's Watford against Liverpool, Saturday, 12.30pm kickoff. Claudio Ranieri's first game in charge. And George, I think Jurgen Klopp's going to spoil it, isn't he? <laughs> uh, you would think so. You know, the overwhelming chances that he will. Uh, it's an interesting game for Ranieri to have first up because whilst a lot of people will think it's it's the worst game possible, I think coming into a match where you basically have a free hit, you know, he's in front of his own his, his own fans. We know that the style is going to change. You know, we spoke to to Dave on the on the podcast last week, Dave Cameron Walker, who's produced the show last week and, and a Watford fan and, and a contributor to their podcast, The Athletic. And, and we discussed how the style is going to change. You know, Ranieri at Sampdoria uh, in his last job um, implemented a high press. We saw his, his Leicester team were obviously incredibly energetic. It's what he tried to implement at Fulham as well. And I think a lot of Watford fans have been pretty put out by how just abject the displays have been at times out of possession. So I think for Ranieri, any 
thing he gets from this game is is a bonus. You know, if they can manage to nick a point, that is a massive positive. But all he's really going to be looking for is a reaction from his players. He's going to look for a, a start to his relationship with the fan base. And I guess for you know, for, if anyone, this is an awkward one for Liverpool, who I think would much rather be playing Cisco Munoz's um, Watford away, where a lot of the fan base weren't happy with him. Uh, instead, they're coming into a side maybe with renewed hope, with a manager who, you know, whilst I'm pretty surprised that he was the one they went for, you know, he's a Premier League winner. He's he's somebody who had, you know, managed at the top end of the, the Premier League for, for Chelsea, who recently managed Roma in, in Syria. You know, he's a guy who's, this job, you would argue, on his CV is beneath him. And that's no disrespect for Watford if you're just looking at where he's been. So it's easy for us to be a bit complacent when it comes to Claudio Ranieri. He is somebody who's achieved a, a hell of a lot in the game. Um, yes, they're probably going to lose this one. I'm, I'm in no way tipping up Watford to win or anything like that. But of the two managers, who's going to be more upset with who they're playing? I, I think it's probably Jurgen Klopp. I think he'll be frustrated that he didn't get the the free hit, I guess, at a, a manager who was, who was walking the tightrope about to get sacked. Yeah, it wouldn't be as much of a shock maybe as the last time Liverpool went to Watford and ended up losing 3-0. Of course, they were at that point in February 2020 looking to go the whole season unbeaten. And it was Watford who were the team who ended that. I mean, in terms of a shock this time around, Steve, are the odds reflective of that? Are they similar to what they were last time? Yeah, it's 100 to 1, Ian, to repeat a 3 0 scoreline. So it's, uh, you know, that would be a shock. And Liverpool are, are 1 to 3 to go there and, and get three points. But I certainly echo Georgie's uh, sentiments there about, about the game. I think, I think Klopp will be a little bit frustrated. But Ranieri's back in the Premier League and he's inherited a team that, let's be honest, has had probably one of the easiest starts in the top flight this season. I mean, they have got seven points on the board. So we're not totally writing them off as bookmakers just yet. However, they they have shortened quite considerably this week for relegation. They've gone from four to five into eight to 13. And I think that's maybe down to the appointment of Ranieri, not getting wholesale thumbs up from the whole punting industry, but also the fact that Newcastle have been taken over and Newcastle have drifted remarkably just from being odds on to being relegated, going out to nine to four. So interesting to see the first four games before the next international break is Liverpool, as we know, Everton, Southampton and Arsenal. And we do have a market on their total points uh, over those four games. And George, I asked you last week, can you re- remind me how many points did we think? What did I, what did I say? <laughs> I was I was I on the beach, I, Steve. You can't ask me that. <laughs> I, I, I thought it was one to three, so I'm gonna I'm gonna yeah. say that at, at, at around it um, at even money. Ian, so I'll ask you, Pell, how many how many points over those four games? Liverpool, Everton, Southampton, and Arsenal. Three. Yeah, even money again. They're they're seven to one to lose uh, all four games. By the way, guys, and uh, and twenty to one to get eight to twelve. Interesting. I mean, if, if they are to do anything this season, stay in the Premier League or get to a good start under Ranieri, you'd think as Mail Assar would be at the centre of all this. I mentioned that result against Liverpool last time. They went to Vicarage Road. He scored twice in that 3-0 victory. He's made a good start to this season, George, hasn't he? And he was good in the Championship as well. He, he was good in the Championship. Um, I, I think, if I'm going to be honest, he was underwhelming given his reputation coming down you know he was a player who I think at a time was linked to Manchester United at a time was linked to Liverpool last summer Um, and normally when you get a player of that quality who due to you know who due to necessary reasons because you know it was during the pandemic clubs weren't spending as much money we saw a glut of players 
coming down last season into the EFL who, who shouldn't really have been there. Normally, they grab that league by the scruff of the neck and perform incredibly well. You know, you think of Arno Dandruma last season, who's now doing great things in Europe. You, you look at Jack Grealish a couple of years ago, you look at Ruben Neves. With Ismail Assar, it was blatantly obvious that was the case in snatches in games. I know he wasn't dominating games consistently. You could see his his ability. And I just wonder if it was a case of him coasting through the season effectively rather than taking that season to prove to everyone what he could do. And I think if he had done that, you know, if he'd gone out and got, I think, 18, 19 goals rather than the 12, 13 that he got, um, he probably still would have been on the radar of those clubs this summer. But it, it wasn't the case. You know, he is obviously an incredibly talented player. Um, I think it's going to help him massively when João Pedro is back. He's come off the bench a couple of times and could be starting here because Pedro is somebody who is so clever with his movement. You know, whilst he is a striker, he's almost like a natural false nine in a way. He's somebody who always drops deep, always looks to to get on the ball on the half turn. And that enables Ismail Assar to run into that space that he leaves him behind. And that's where he's so, so effective, such a good goal scorer. So yeah, I mean, I mean, I, I was, as a somebody who covers the EFL pretty heavily, probably a little bit disappointed in Saar last season, purely because we know how good he is. Having said that, I mean, Watford wouldn't have been promoted without Saar. So he, he did his job. Um, and yeah, I, I think maybe we're, we're likely to see a bit of an improvement with him in the next couple of weeks now that he's got his mate back fit. Yeah, in terms of the Liverpool attack, there's a bit of a question mark over Diogo Jota's fitness at the minute. Roberto Firmino's not going away with Brazil, so he's not one of the players like Alisson and Fabinho who face this dramatic bid to try and get back for matches like quite a few of the South American players in the Premier League. Alexander-Arnold is expected to be fit after missing before the international break and missing the matches for England as well. And Joel Matip's likely to feature as well. Now, Kiva O'Neill has been writing in The Athletic about him and his popularity amongst Liverpool fans, which... Steve, he doesn't seem to show any sign of, of going away that. He just seems to grow in popularity, whether it's a, a nice Twitter account parried in him or, or, or his performances. He just keeps impressing. Yeah, very much so. I think we all like players like that, don't we? But as regard to Liverpool defensively, I've been looking at the data. I'm, I'm quite concerned a little bit. Listen, they're great going forward. There's no doubt about it. They've got the highest XG from open play. We're not surprised by that. But they are not giving up a load of chances, you know, at the back. 55 shots they've conceded in the box and 10 big chances that they have conceded already. And that's that's mid-table from the um, expected goal against from open play. So, well, you know, talking glowingly about Matty, but of course Virgil van Dijk as well, who I'm going to come to shortly as regards to my best bet. Um, I'm not saying Watford are going to, uh, you know, score a hatful like they did uh, the last time they met, but I'm, I'm, I'm just um, interested to see how that Liverpool do defensively over the next few games. It feels like a tip that Watford are going to score that to me. <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm more interested, Ian, in Watford's vulnerability from set plays. Um, I know they have a new manager there and Ranieri, he might not have had a, enough time to work on the on the training ground, but they've considered the most shots from set plays. Um, and of course, Liverpool with Trent Alexander-Arnold probably back are the best at set plays in the division. And I'm looking at a, a centre-half who actually scored a brace against Watford two years ago and he's had 11 attempts so far without scoring. And he did score in midweek for Holland for the first time in 931 days. <laughs> Just like buses, I'm going to go for Virgil van Dijk to get his first goal of the season for Liverpool at the weekend. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. 
You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Okay, game two then. Brentford against Chelsea, Saturday, 5.30pm kickoff in the UK. Chelsea leading the way in the Premier League at the minute, and... This will be an interesting game, won't it, to be fair? I mean, George, Brentford have impressed defensively in most matches. They've impressed in attack against Liverpool. They've impressed generally, haven't they? It's a tough tough task this for Chelsea. Yeah, I've been really impressed by, by Brentford so far. Um, I think we're starting to see a bit of attacking verve come in at, uh, at Brentford. You know, the win over Wolves until they were down to 10 men was, was them absolutely battering them, surging forward at every occasion. Tony could have had could have had loads. The West Ham game um, last weekend. And whilst naturally when you're 1-0 up away from home, the longer the game went on, the more they looked to, to sit back and defend, especially because they lost Yanel and Baptiste, um, Yanel before the game and Baptiste during the game due to injury. Um, so they ended up with a midfield duo who, who weren't really the plan or midfield three, I should say. But they didn't really concede many chances. You know, Bowen's strike was a very good one, but David Rea didn't have many saves to make. And then it was them again who went forward and got the goal to win it with 10 minutes to go on the clock at one all. Um, They got the injury time winner. So they just look completely at ease at this level. I think there's an argument to be had that they are a side who are better playing against better opposition because it enables them to exploit the, the space in behind. They're so comfortable in their shape. You know, I, I praised Rico Henry last week. And I'll do it again now for anyone who didn't listen because of international break. He is a superb left back who is, you know, in my opinion, at least the third best left back that England have. Um, yeah, I mean, I've, I've been incredibly impressed so far. This is going to be a much more difficult task. It's an opportunity for them to really show where they are, I think, because that opening day result against Arsenal, whilst it was... Great. It was against basically Arsenal's second string team. You mentioned the Liverpool result there. Yeah, of course. But I think now, having got points on the board, having shown that they can beat a side like West Ham, who finished sixth last season and have aspirations to do so again, and did, and did that on merit, this is an opportunity for them to say, you know, we spoke last week, could they feasibly be an outside bet to finish in the top six? Well, you know, they wouldn't have to win this game uh, on, on, on Saturday for us to find out, but we're going to see a lot more about how good they are up against one of the best coached and most talented teams in the division. Yeah, they'll need to stop Romelu Lukaku again this weekend as well. In terms of his form, first four matches, four goals for Romelu Lukaku in a Chelsea shirt, and he's not scored in his last five, including missing a couple of sitters against Southampton as well. So the question is, are Chelsea still working out how to best use Lukaku? Hi, Mark Carey here, data analyst for The Athletic. And the piece I worked on alongside one of our Chelsea writers, Simon Johnson, was looking at how Chelsea can get the most out of uh, Romelu Lukaku on a consistent basis. And I think that consistency part is, is key here. Is he started off you know, incredibly against Arsenal in his first game, but as we show in the piece, we, we can see from his non-penalty expected goals, so the quality of chances that he's getting across each of the six games that he's since played, you can you can see quite a dramatic kind of fluctuation between those games in terms of those quality of chances. And 
that's obviously likely to, to also reflect the, the team performance in providing him with those opportunities, but you can definitely see a difference game to game, especially against the, the more difficult uh, quality opposition. I think, you know, to get him more involved, he needs to get on the ball more, put, put simply. I think that so far this season, we can, we can see that his touches per 90 minutes have dropped off quite notably uh, compared with his time at Inter Milan and Manchester United. So simply getting him more touches on the ball is is paramount. I think that, that Chelsea have a lot of players in that attacking midfield mould, but Lukaku can drop in himself into that sort of between the lines and drag defenders with him and open up spaces for those attacking midfielders to exploit and, and run in behind him. But I think that dynamic is still being established across across those individuals within the team. So I think those things will take time. But he's still shooting as much as he was in previous seasons. The numbers back that up. But he's doing so with fewer touches, put, put simply. So as you can imagine, um, you know, you imagine that you'll see a further increase in the amount of shots that he'll take if he simply gets on on the ball more and gets more involved. So um, yeah, I don't think there's any reason to panic just yet. But I think there's certainly room for improvement in the early stages of the season. Thanks to Mark Carey there for his thoughts. And Steve, Lukaku started like a house on fire and someone's brought an extinguisher, haven't they? <laughs> well, you know what social media is like, it's uh, half, half full, half empty. You know, let's give the bloke a chance, shall we? Um, <laughs> ad- admittedly, I'll say that after I've just pushed him out in the top goal scorer market. And uh, yeah. There you go. <laughs> yeah, making making Mo Salah favourite at 5-2 to two with, uh, with Lukaku, their second best at 11-4. to four. Admittedly, you know, he faced that Arsenal defence, didn't he? I think on his debut where he had eight shots and he looked absolutely fantastic, didn't he? Uh, goals, you know, assists, etc. Um and then we've seen him, what, score two goals from two shots against Aston Villa. He played 45 minutes against 10 men at Anfield. Listen, the guy's had four big chances. He's scored three goals. I think he missed a sitter against Southampton late on. Uh, he didn't have a shot, I recall, against Manchester City either. Um, but he's still, he's got three goals. I think Mo Salah's got six, but there's not a great deal between them. Even these, there is a great deal between them at this stage, three goals. So... Five to two Salah, eleven to four uh, Lukaku, and one hundred to thirty Cristiano Ronaldo, who's drifting like a barge after the last couple of games in the Premier League. But we'll probably move on from that. I think we should do definitely. Yeah, George, what do you make of Lukaku's sort of emergence at Chelsea? Because he looked like a player reborn initially in English football after, of course, a, a bit of a dodgy spell in the end at Old Trafford. The last few matches, though, some question marks again. Yeah, I wouldn't be too concerned if I was a Chelsea fan. Um, you know, he is a very, very different player now to the one who left Manchester United, thanks to Antonio Conte and the, and the work that he did with him. Um, that performance that we saw from him against Arsenal, I think will live long in the memory as, as one of the most dominating centre-forward performances I've ever seen in the Premier League. And that's irrespective of his goal, the way that he was able to to, to control the ball, to bring others into play, just to physically batter um, the opposition. I mean, this always happens with Premier League strikers. I mean, Kane is... is the difference where his barren spells seem to last weeks or even months uh, before turning it around after a fast start there were going to be question marks after a couple of games without a goal but um, you know he's playing for a side who probably aren't going to be as free scoring as Liverpool as Manchester United as Manchester City given the way that they set up um, I don't think this is the curse striking again let's say that 
No, I've tried my best to worry people about Lukaku, but I don't think it's going to work, <laughs> is it? Let's talk about someone else. Ruben Loftus-Cheek has emerged in recent weeks, Steve, hasn't he? He sort of got his, his start against Southampton before the international break. He's come on as a sub a few times as well. And a, an insider at the club told The Athletic that Tuchel said something along the lines of, you are special and I cannot believe you haven't played more for Chelsea. That must be great for him to hear. I suppose great in, in, in one respect. I'm sure he's been told that before, but... Um, maybe frustrating also that he hasn't had a, a real great run in a side. Admittedly, it's a, it's a difficult side to get into as well. And I'd, I'd love to see him to, to have a, a, a real, you know, consistent run of of matches playing, playing starting for Chelsea. I mean, he's 25 now. You know, he's been around for a little bit. Um, you know, we saw him as he was on loan at Fulham, wasn't he? And he 31 games he played. He had 31 shots, but only scored one goal, and and that was against Everton, and, and, and didn't get any any assists at all. Uh, I know the guy suffered a, a, a bad injury as well. So, you know, a, a fit and fire in Ruben Loftus-Cheek would be would be great to see. I think clearly with the, all the games that Chelsea have, have you know, coming up in, in a whole host of uh, competitions, then maybe he can get more game time and show us what a quality player that he really is. Yeah, because they're not blessed with options in midfield at the minute either, are they? And, and Sal Niguez, after a pretty disappointing first 45 minutes on his debut, seems to have gone away for the moment. I mean... George, what do you think about Loftus-Cheek's chances of starting at Brentford this weekend? I'm a massive Loftus-Cheek fan. Uh, I think Palace were incredibly keen to make his loan signing permanent, but it, it never came off. You know, I, I spoke to a friend of mine who's a Chelsea fan and, and mentioned that quote. And he said, how long did Tuchel have? Because, you know, Loftus-Cheek could have spoken to him for hours about the reasons why it hadn't really worked out. Um, but there's no denying his talent. And he's a player who you, you can basically do anything with the ball that he wants he's a brilliant ball carrier he's a fantastic passer he's a goal threat as well uh, and a, you know, a coach like Tuchel could really do something with him so I, I hope we see plenty more of him I'm a big fan uh, George then just to round this off how do you see it playing out Brentford Chelsea trying to find a couple of ways to side with Brentford you know I'm not going to be backing them at 11 to 2 nor do I really want to take on the Chelsea 4 to 7 but I think on the Asian handicap uh, the alternative Asian handicap really going into the nitty gritty of uh, Bet365's back catalogue here. Uh, the um, plus plus 0.75 Brentford. So basically half your money back if it's uh, if they're only beaten by one goal at a shade of odds against. So 2.05 uh, is the way I'd like to play this. They're just kind of tentatively siding with Brentford. And the one other way I want to go is on the anytime goal scorer list as well. Ivan Tony's 6-1 first last two to one anytime Brian and Bomo is priced up as 12 to one first class nine to two anytime that discrepancy is way too big uh, and Bomo is too big there he is playing very well he's a massive goal threat he's almost playing in a two the way he, he comes so far inside um, with Tony at the moment so uh, and somebody who's very good at got the pace to, to spring an offside trap and Tony is somebody who especially given his reputation at the moment, a lot of defences doubling up on him, uh, as we saw at West Ham. So I think the value lies with Mbomo this time, even if Tony will inevitably score more goals than him over the course of the season. Steve, he's just showing off now with your back catalogue of options, yeah. isn't he? <laughs> <laughs> i tell you what, I hope there aren't many pictures in my, in that back catalogue, believe me. Um, no, listen, I mean, Anthony Taylor's referee as well for this game. I, th I, I don't think Chelsea fans are too enamoured by, by that appointment. They're always moaning about penalties and red cards. So maybe Ivan Tony could be the play, George, with the, with the penalty. But you're mm. right about Mbomo. I, I'm looking at that price now. It's incorrect. It, He's playing further forward than Tony at the moment. He's having yeah. more chances. Talked last week, he's hit the woodwork four times. I might have to... Uh, might have Don't to you dare change that, Steve. <laughs> okay. Eh? <laughs> okay, I'll leave it. I'll leave it. I'll leave it. I'll leave it. Okay. <laughs> 
Right then, before we continue with the podcast, please remember that if you are going to have a bet this weekend, make sure that you do so responsibly. George, you've got some helpful tips on how to make sure that we do just that. Yeah, it's important to us that the listeners of this podcast are in control of their gambling. This is a podcast for those who are 18 years of age and older. Please ensure that you are only staking what you can afford to lose and do visit BeGambleAware.org for any information to ensure that you're gambling responsibly. Rightio, let's talk about game number three then. Everton against West Ham, a Sunday, two o'clock kickoff for this one. And Everton come into this match like they seem to come into every match of late with an injury crisis, or at least we're waiting for clarification on exactly their position for this game. Dominic Calvert-Lewin, Richarlison, Andre Gomez, Seamus Coleman, Fabian Delph all been missing in recent weeks. But it, Steve, it hasn't affected Everton's performances or results too much, really, has it? No, were you, were you nervous in that game, Ian? Um... Yeah, when Mina put that ball away, did you did you think it was offside it, it straight away? It looked a mile offside to me. It was never really a concern. Uh, I'll be honest. You want to take those uh, red glasses <laughs> off of yours? Really. What did you make of uh, What did you make of Townsend celebration? Uh, I, I I thought the celebration was absolutely absolutely fine. If you want to go and do that in the corner, that's fine. But own it. Don't come out afterwards and say I it's know. a mark of respect. It, it was not a mark yeah. of respect, was it? He just it got a, a bit carried away. <laughs> Yeah, well, he probably was closer to that, really, wasn't yeah. it? And then he went after his shirt and then he told the story about how he didn't want to give him his shirt. So I think he was just finding ways to bury Ronaldo, basically. That's what it seemed like, anyway. Um, but yeah, let's get back to it. Everton, yeah. West Ham, yeah, injury well, a... crisis. It's not about yeah. United, is it? Come on. No, I know. I'm sorry. We're well, such a big club, aren't you? It's... Um... <laughs> I mean, Everton went off at uh, at eleven to two. Even you know, so I mean, you know, they were missing key key players that day, and they put in a great performance. And and you know, that Townsend goal, as we've talked about, and I think Andros Townsend has been a huge huge positive for for Rafa Benitez after a real quiet window. You know, he's helped to cover up the injuries, of course, too to the two key players up top. Um, three goals, two assists. He loves playing for Rafa. He's full of confidence. Damari Gray's also stepped up as well. That was a great team goal that they scored. I think defensively, they've been great as well. Their XG against in open plays, 3.9, which is one of the best in the division. I think the only blip defensive they had was against Aston Villa. And thank thank God Dan isn't here. But when they scored with all three shots on target, um, mm. th- their next two games, West Ham and Watford, I think both at home. So they've got a chance to kick on and, and you know, they could be the top six challengers this season, without a doubt. Yeah, West Ham seem to be there or thereabouts again, don't they, George? But the last few weeks, they've not quite looked at their best. Is that just a case of all the fixtures catching up with them a little bit? I mean, Mikel Antonio is still their only striker. He's going to play a lot this season, isn't he? He's going to have to. Yeah, he's going to have to. You know, it's consistent that we see a drop off normally from sides who aren't used to playing European football to suddenly having it thrust upon them and having to, you know, they don't have the biggest squad having to work that out. You know, we've still seen some decent performances and results recently. Of course, the, the 2 1 away win at Leeds stands out as being a, a good bit of form we've seen recently. Um, the less said about the, the 1 0 win at Manchester United in the in the cup, the better, because of course that was two second string teams, wasn't it? So, <laughs> but um, yeah, as I said, I was there on, on last Sunday and saw them play. And I wasn't particularly impressed. Um, I thought they, for the first half especially, looked pretty out of sorts and pretty devoid of ideas. Um, a lot of, um, interestingly, I heard about three separate West Ham fans moaning that it was back to the Allardyce days as, the, as they often went long um, looking for, for balls over the top for Antonio to run onto. I mean, he, he's so important to the way they play. And you have to think that as long 
as Antonio is there, they're always going to cause teams problems because he is so good at what he does. And, you know, in Jared Bowen, they've got a player who is aggressive and direct in the way that he, you know, every time he gets on the ball, he's driving at goal. I think Everton a lot of, lose a lot of their attacking vigour when Seamus Coleman and Luca Dini aren't playing, who, who, who both look set to miss this one as well. So I wonder if that might have a bit of a, you know, a, a negative impact on the game, that with with. Everton probably having Godfrey and, and Holgate playing as fullbacks, um, especially given West Ham's ability in wide areas, it makes them a bit more solid. But, you know, for West Ham, um, it seems a classic case of expectations being being raised to a level now after their sixth place, place finish last season that David Moyes is going to have a very, very difficult time um, re- replicating because it was such an amazing season last campaign. Yeah, Steve, in terms of the best of the rest, really, outside the current top four, which was the top four that many people expected to sort of take shape as this season went on. We're only seven matches in, but already Chelsea, Manchester City, Liverpool, Manchester United are the top four, even it is on goal difference at the minute. Are these two the most likely, do you feel, to be able to break into that? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, Arsenal and Spurs are, are still 11 or 10 joints, you know, to finish into in the top six, really. I mean, I mean, that's where we think they'll be. I mean, you cannot see, you know, the big the big four being, you know, displaced um, at all. And then we've got Everton at two to one and Leicester, who are, who are drifting like a, a barge at the moment at 12 to five to finish in the top six. Is West Ham at seven to two. So, so we think that Leicester, Arsenal... Spurs probably got more chance than West Ham and, and Everton are definitely there or thereabouts. So top four, I think, Ian, definitely set in stone um, this season. George, just going back to Antonio for a minute, there's this interesting story. His international career is, is bizarre. He's been called up to England squads, had to pull out through injury. He's been called up to Jamaican squads and didn't have his passport sorted. Then COVID mm. got involved. Uh, he's had injuries for Jamaica as well. He has made his debut now for Jamaica in a competitive match as well, a World Cup qualifier. So have England missed out on something with Antonio? Because like we say, he's been in and around the squads. He's been impressive for West Ham. And when Harry Kane isn't on it for England... And obviously, Calvert-Lewin's been injured as well. But are they missing an alternative to Kane, really? Have we missed a trip with Antonio? I think maybe. I think it's very easy to say yes after what we saw on Tuesday. I can barely think of a striker who'd have been better to bring on than Antonio in that game where we needed someone to disrupt things, um, someone to run the channels, someone to turn the defence. And we didn't really have that. But having said that, there are an embarrassment of riches up front for, for England, you know, Tammy Abraham coming on is a brilliant person to be able to bring on in that situation. He got injured. There's Ollie Watkins to come on. We haven't spoken about Ivan Tony, who's yet to win his first cap. Dominic Calvert-Lewin is injured. You know, there are plenty of players of that ilk. But what I would say is that McCann Antonio doesn't look to me to be any worse than those players. And, and he offers something a bit different. So, yeah, I think it's a surprise that he was never given the opportunity to show what he could do, especially when in tournament football particularly, you're not only looking for the, the the three or four best strikers that are eligible to play, you're looking for different options. You're looking for ways to change a game. If Kane isn't working, who can you bring in? Who can do something a bit different? And Antonio definitely fits that. You don't just want like-for-like like, um, substitutions able to be made. So yeah, I, I, I wish he'd been given his chance. Yeah, we've actually got a market, guys, on, on his Premier League goals uh, this season. Um, and when, uh, just looking at his data before, I mean, you're thinking how, how Gareth Southgate can't have a look at this fella. He's only played six games this season. 50 penalty box touches, 27 attempts, 23 of them in the box, seven big chances. He's created four big chances himself and he's had three assists in six games. 
Um, I mean, that is quite impressive, really, from what... And he just seems to get better with age as well. He's an absolutely incredible footballer. It's uh, And good luck to him. Um, but with his five goals already, how many do we think he gets this season? 15. Whoa. 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 Impressive. Ooh. Impressive. And and you've nailed it. Yeah. Uh, 14, to six, 14, to six, 14 to 16 is the 2-1 to one favourite. Um, by the way, he's only 11-2 to two to get 20 or more. Interesting. And do you think you'll have a say on this game at the weekend? Can you see West Ham getting anything at Goodison Park? I can, yeah. But I think I think it's going to be a tight game. And as regards to um, a bet, I think uh, both sides last year, I think there's a goal in it. And I think there'll be a, maybe a goal in it this time. So I'm looking to go under two and a half goals. Perhaps Andrew Townsend can score and go off and hold up a cardboard cut out of himself <laughs> in a mark of respect to Mikel Antonio. <laughs> that would work, wouldn't it? <laughs> Okay, next game. Newcastle against Tottenham later on on Sunday, 4.30pm kickoff in the UK. Has anything happened at Newcastle recently, George, that we need to mention? I've not heard much mentioned during this international break. Yes, uh, the, the takeover has gone through, um, finally. Uh, and there are clearly issues um, surrounding the takeover uh, off the pitch. Um, I'm not here to, to tell Newcastle fans how they should feel about losing an owner like Mike Ashley, who I think on that point alone we can all be very happy that Newcastle fans are rid of an owner who in my opinion didn't really have the club's best interests at heart um, but whether or not the takeover um, from I don't know how to word this a consortium very closely linked to, to, to Saudi Arabia and their, and their human rights record is a good thing um, I think I will leave the autonomy up to those who want to make those decisions themselves but undoubtedly it's going to spell a massive time of change for Newcastle United Football Club, both in terms of the next couple of weeks, the next couple of months, the next couple of years and probably the next few decades. Yeah, no doubt, whichever way you look at it, it's been an incredibly emotional week, hasn't it, for Newcastle fans. So let's take a listen to how one familiar fan is feeling ahead of the match on Sunday. Hi, I'm Taylor Payne. I'm the host of the Athletics Newcastle United podcast, Pod on the Tyne. Uh, and it's been quite a week for Newcastle fans um, after initial uh, feelings of some relief and joy at the, uh, the takeover finally being completed uh, and Mike Ashley's tenure coming to an end. I have to say it has given way to some feelings of, uh, of conflict uh, and there's been a bit of soul searching this week as well. I'm not entirely sure exactly how I feel about this takeover yet. Uh, I think time is going to tell on that one. And with the real prospect of a game of football happening in the next few days as well, Steve Bruce is still in a job. Uh, I'm not entirely sure what the thoughts are behind that with the, with the new owners. Maybe they want to give the guy time. Maybe it's a transitional thing. Uh, maybe they want him to get that thousandth game. Uh, unfortunately, if that is the case, I think it's probably going to lead to an eighth game of the season without a win. Uh, for Newcastle United but you never know you never know we, we don't have a, a bad record against Tottenham Hotspur at home so let's wait and see um, whatever happens it's going to be an emotional day um, and the atmosphere inside St James Park will absolutely be electric um, so fingers crossed for three points our thanks to Taylor Payne for sending that in as well uh, well what's going to happen George I mean anything could happen between now and the end of the season between now and January I mean there's lots and lots to sort out there yeah like it's I thought the one thing we could be sure of was that Steve Bruce would be out of a job as manager of Newcastle United and I think that Can't is be sure still of that now. no but oh, yeah, that, that still feels like a, a matter of of when rather than if 
but having said that, he manages this game on the weekend. We've already had a few early candidates for the job. Brendan Rodgers, Antonio Conte, distancing themselves from it. So, I mean, what happens if suddenly things start turning in the right direction under Steve Bruce? I mean, we're still anticipating that he, he will leave. What happens in the next few months, I think, depends crucially on on who the manager signed is going to be. Um, I, I think, and I say this for every top job, and I, and I don't know if you can class Newcastle as a top job yet, I think they should do everything they can to try and get Graham Potter if they're trying to build something sustainable long-term for the future because if they don't get him, someone else is going to get him uh, or Brighton are going to keep him and, and they're going to be the ones who profits because I have no doubt that he, at some club, whether it's could be anybody from Manchester City to Brighton to Manchester United to Newcastle um, is going to end up being a very successful manager in this league uh, in the next decade or so. Um, crucially for me, though, there's so much talk about the transfer business and there's talk about Haaland and there's talk about Mbappe. The one place where I think they need to invest crucially and immediately is in the infrastructure around recruitment at the club because the, for all the talk of, of Haaland, for all the talk of Mbappe, the the club isn't built to recruit for the level of spending that they want to. Um, you know, the interesting for me is that James Tarkovsky seems to be the one concrete rumour. And that strikes me as a very sensible signing. A guy who is a very good centre-back with Premier League experience, who can probably play a bit more expansive football than we're used to seeing him play at Burnley, whose contract is running out, who wants to leave the club. And that fills me with a bit of hope because going out and signing players who for, for massive money who aren't going to play in Europe, so therefore the, the cost of putting them in is going to accentuate it even further, just, just doesn't strike me as a very solid way to recruit you know you look at the way that Man City recruited early on when they got their money it was it was not clever it was not good it was spending money for money's sake which did initially lift them up a level but it wasn't a sustainable future the key thing for me is going to be finding basically deciding on who is going to be making these key decisions at Newcastle a the manager and the management team and b who in the boardroom is going to be recruited to oversee everything strategic at the club going forward because if they want to be challenging with the likes of Manchester City and Liverpool and Chelsea and Manchester United, then the whole infrastructure of the club has to change. And that is where the majority of the recruitment has to go early on um, in this new era for Newcastle United Football Club. Yeah, all sorts of names being linked already. All sorts of names being linked to the manager's job. Uh, Steve, what odds have we got now of Steve Bruce actually taking charge of his 1,000th match in management this weekend? As we record here now, he is still the Newcastle manager. Yeah, it's probably looking... Looking very short, uh, Ian. Um, I know he's in his, you know, the car park, the training ground every day because that's all Sky Sport News keep on showing. You know, <laughs> <laughs> just just checking, you know, what he's putting in his car. It could be a Mars bar or something like that, but they'd show it, wouldn't they? Um, yeah. Listen, I mean, the the love for Newcastle is, you know, to to do so well this season after the takeover has been absolutely incredible. The fact that they've gone from from four to five to nine to four, basically overnight after the takeover. This is a side who hasn't won a Premier League game yet, by the way. They've gone from uh, hundreds into fifties to finish in the top six. Yep, that's right, the top six. Uh, 16 to one into six to one for a top half finish. They haven't won the FA Cup since 1955. Well, they're into 33 to one to do that from, from 66 to one. Um, and, th and these prices will blow your mind for next season. To win the Premier League next season, Newcastle United, forty to one, five to five to one for a top four finish, ten to eleven to finish in the top six, and one to ten 
to finish in the top half. Oh yeah, by the way, you can have six to one that they finish in the bottom half. So, I mean, I think clearly... Odds on to finish in the top six, did you just say? 10 to 11, yes. That was lunacy. Wow. Yeah, I mean, that's where the marketplace is currently, you know, just because, you know, it feels like, however, that this new ownership, is, it's going to take time, quite clearly, from, you know, from what we've seen. The fact that probably Steve Bruce is in a, a bit of a limbo, really, unfortunately for him. Um, so, yes, and, and that's where it's at. So it's quite, it's quite incredible. I, I mean, me personally, I think, I think I'd think i back to finish in the... What? Even even to be relegated this... I know, I know that sounds ridiculous. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it does sound ridiculous. But I suppose, what, you know, George has talked to the type of calibre of, of player that you're going to sign. I suppose that the closer we get to January, I mean, you're going to do well to attract them if they're still going to be down there towards the bottom three. So very, yeah, I'm going to... I'm very interested to see how this uh, this one goes. That would make um, my day job very interesting if Newcastle United were relegated this season, I must say. <laughs> Kylian Mbappe playing in the championship next season. Yeah, yeah. we'll see. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, he might do better than Ismail Asar even, you never know. Um, Harry Kane's a player that's been linked even to Newcastle. He will be playing at St James's Park this weekend, of course. Uh, he scored twice on his last two visits. Is this the place, Steve, where he ends his drought in the Premier League this season for you? Oh, yeah, like you say, you know, to a brace in, in a couple of games up there as well. It's, I'm frustrating to see him, even at, even at you know, the game George was at, at at Wembley. I mean, there was no... There weren't many boos, were there, George, when he came off? I think we were just happy just to see him off, just put him out of his misery. Um, 463 minutes without a goal now in the Premier League. Absolutely everything he does, he's been scrutinised, he's been analysed, isn't it? I mean, he had six shots against Villa. I think that's the most he's had in the season so far. All very low quality, but we're still, from a bookmaker point of view, he's, he's still fourth favourite to finish top goal scorer at 16-1, to despite not scoring yet. And maybe... Newcastle players and fans with their cloud, you know, with their head in the clouds, maybe this could be the chance for him to um, to make hay. But we're not writing him off just yet. George, how do you think this plays out then? Newcastle, Tottenham. It's really hard to say. I don't think I can take any exception with the outright prices. You know, Tottenham just over even money, twenty-one to twenty seems about fair. Newcastle five to two. I do think playing a bit of amateur psychology here. Um, I think. I mean, obviously, the the atmosphere at St James's Park is going to be the best it's been probably in decades to be honest um, here and it's massive for them that they have this game at home straight up against a side who they probably f- fancy themselves to beat now for Steve Bruce I don't know how he approaches this game is he just waiting for his nice um, basically pay packet to, to vacate the club is he going into this thinking this is an opportunity for him to stake his claim to be the manager to lead them forward I don't know what I do know is that the, the players are going to want to play a part in this there's no doubt about that the likes of Sam Maxima, um, the likes of, you know, even someone like Dwight Gale, who's like to start up front, they are going to want to show what they can do in order to show the, the new owners, the new manager who comes in to give them a chance. And looking down the list of, of goal scorers for this game, there's one price that stands out. You know, I mentioned Gale there's the favourite to, to score for Newcastle. He's 12 to 5 to score any time. Joe Linton, another player who's going to be desperate to impress, 3 to 1. Willock, 3 to 1. Alan Sam Maxima is 130. Now, Sam Maxima is the one player who. I think would be, um, you know, he, he could play on base on either side in this game and be one of the best players for that side. You know, he's, he's Newcastle's best player. He, he is a top six player, in my opinion, and he's started the season in scintillating form. So Maxima is Newcastle's best goal threat. And we've seen already this season, and you look at someone like Wilfred Zaha and the problems that he caused Spurs in that, in that Palace game, um, his pace and his trickery and his 
ridiculous shot. I mean, the power that he generates from his shot with that low back lift is just phenomenal. Um, I fancy Newcastle to to put on a bit of a performance here or at least step up a bit. I wouldn't want to bat them to win the game, but I think Sir Maxima should cause Spurs problems. And that that price of 130 on him scoring any time uh, is very attractive. So let's have the double. Yeah. Why don't we have the double as well? Him him and, uh, and Bomo um, is the any time double for my two games. This episode is supported by season three of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Expected as Manchester United would have expected. That's Vieira! Absolutely fantastic! It's fluid! Super, right. The last game of the Premier League weekend on Monday night, 8 o'clock kickoff, is Arsenal against Crystal Palace. It's the last match that we're going to discuss on the podcast as well. And an intriguing tale, really. Patrick Vieira returning to Arsenal for the first time as a manager, having made a pretty decent start, Steve, it seems, at Palace. The results have been a little bit up and down, maybe, but certainly in terms of the feel around the club and the progress he seems to be making, setting out what he wants the team to do, the, the tactics, the style of play, he seems to have made an instant impact there. Exciting times, I would say. I mean, I, I, as an Albion fan, I, I love Roy Hodgson. He, he did well at Palace, you know, let's be honest. He, he, he ran his course there. And I think when Patrick Vieira came in there were a few doubters um but i think the early signs have been very promising yes they've been hammered at chelsea they've been hammered at liverpool uh, they considered an injury time equalizer to their biggest rivals which would have been frustrating but the fact that they can claw their way back from 2-0 down again against leicester as well i think should be um, should be applauded as well i think it's a new team it's a younger team it's a hungrier team i think defensively the two center halves look uh, look good as well um, slight concerns going forward maybe they've only had 18 shots on target I think only Norwich have had uh, fewer than that at uh, at 17 but that will come you know it's a new side so but I think it's very very positive from the early stages from Patrick Vieira and Crystal Palace George it's two Arsenal legends going head to head in the dugout is maybe the away manager more popular than the home manager still at the moment <laughs> it's been such a weird popularity arc at, at Arsenal for Arteta. Because Good way of he, describing you know, it, that. Popularity yeah, he, arc, I like that. Because <laughs> he came in and without really showing much, managed to convince Arsenal fans that he was the second coming and that he was um, going to... The FA you know, Cup he, he, he was the man. I mean, that was big. But I think even before that, um, even though I don't think there was necessarily a great deal in, you know, certainly in the, in the tactical side of the performances that suggested that he was the mastermind behind it all. I think we've maybe seen more in the last 
eight months that suggests he's learning and improving than we have done previously and yet his popularity seems to be at an all-time low you know I've said on this podcast plenty of times I think the, the stick that he got early in this campaign was completely unfounded you know they they had six players missing in the first game they were beaten with 10 men against City and then they came up against a ridiculous Lukaku performance and only lost 2-0 against Chelsea and they had plenty of chances and they've been much better since then um having said that yeah probably I mean the the key thing for me here is if I was an Arsenal fan who was um, disillusioned with life under Arteta, you know, we can be sure here that Palace are going to press Arsenal incredibly high. They are going to be unbelievably aggressive off the ball as they have been all season. If they do a job on them the way that they did a job on Spurs, you're going to be an Arsenal fan and sitting there seeing one of your best ever players in the dugout, wondering if you've got the wrong one. And that is going to be an interesting psychological battle between Arteta and Vieira. Um, I, I don't. I'm not sitting here saying I think Vieira is a better manager than him, or I think he made the wrong decision, or even that he's going to go there. But if I was an Arsenal fan in that situation, that would be my thinking. Um, but you know, we've all been fairly, you know, incredibly impressed and surprised by what Vieira has done so far. And the one thing you can say between those two managers is that when you watch Arteta's Arsenal, even when they are playing well, there's no you know, continuous style of play in a similar way, sorry to bring this up, in a similar way to Oli at United. You know, it doesn't, there isn't a set out style that he seems to be implementing week in, week out to create chances to win football matches. With Vieira, that has been incredibly clear from day one. They're going to be aggressive. They want to play with the ball in your half and not really let you um, have any spells of possession anywhere near the goal. And it's so far so good. It seems to be working. Whether they can maintain that intensity long-term into the season... Um, we're yet to see. Yeah, th- that said, Palace have only got seven points on the board so far, and that points tally was enough for the Watford manager to lose his job, Steve. So, are, are we are we sort of are we being over the top with the praise for Vieira, or have we seen enough in the performances that the results don't matter too much? I just think he's just been steady away. I, you know, I, like I said, it's it's a bit transitional for for Palace, just like. I'm not in a rush to to hammer Arteta. You know, I know he's been there. He's he's been there for a longer time, but I'd like to give you know Vieira the season just to just to see, you know, how how good he is. I think there's some positives there right away. And Arsenal, you know, they they haven't lost what for four games now. They've conceded one goal. I think that was against Spurs, and I think and mm. uh, it was a, a a terrible weather, wasn't it? Was that Saturday night? Was it against Brighton? Where I thought Brighton were the better side, but they managed to get a nil nil. I think getting rid of Emi Martinez was was a huge mistake. Um, you know, they've brought in a goalkeeper now, Ramsdale. That again, people were thinking, "Hold on a second, you're uh, you're spending a few quid on him." He's he's his dad was actually a maths teacher at a local school, would you believe? <laughs> and he and he lived True opposite story. and he lived opposite my school. That is some useless trivia. And the figures wow. and the figures certainly didn't add up with regards to Ramdale, Ramsdale's um, transfer fee for a lot of people, but. I think he's come in and he's played really well and he's pulled off some great saves and he looks a goalkeeper full of confidence as well. And um, I'm interested, again, that's going to be about part of my bet as well and um, for this one, because I think this is going to be another low scoring game as well. He seems to be the right formula between the sticks, doesn't he, Aaron Ramsdale? Yeah, I, th- I think so. I think I think the ball at his feet as well. Um, he's he's in his formula. Growing... That that was that was. Oh, sorry. That, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah. Oh, <laughs> I, yeah. Well, listen. Yeah, George went to university. I didn't. You can you, you can tell that, can't you? <laughs> In fact, you can. Mr. Ramsdale will probably tell. I didn't go to school very often either. So, um, but that's a di- that's a different story. We can but probably no. subtract this section from the podcast. I would have thought very much so. Yes, very good. Yeah, George. It's a fixture we see a lot, though, isn't it? A, a sort of 
traditional big six side against a so-called smaller club. But but these fixtures are so different in the, in the modern Premier League, aren't they? They really are. I mean, five, six, maybe even less. Um, years ago, we we knew how these games would go. It would be the top, not top, top six side, we're talking about Arsenal these days, the big six side um, with all the ball, <laughs> uh, with all the possession up against a low block. And that was how it went for so long. And, and Palace, no, no more team was at the case than, than Crystal Palace under Roy Hodgson in the last few years. Uh, but we, we are now seeing that trend shift where, I mean, Arsenal are one case, Chelsea are very much another. Chelsea don't really look to press too much out of possession, even though they do keep the ball maybe a bit more than Arsenal do. But we've got plenty of other clubs who look to press at any opportunity despite being supposedly the minnows. You know, we saw Sheffield United doing it successfully to start with and then not so much. Fulham last season, despite being uh, relegated in the second half of the campaign, were, were their pressing numbers were through the roof. Uh, we see Brighton do it under Graham Potter. Um, Aston Villa immediately after coming up doing it with Dean Smith and now Palace taking it to almost a new extreme under under Patrick Vieira. So there has been a shift in terms of the way that these games match up and, and well, I wouldn't even be surprised if Palace had more of the ball, I, I think, than Arsenal at the Emirates. And, and I'd be amazed if that's happened many times over the years. So it should be a great game, I think, for the neutral to watch because so many players were great to watch on both sides you know I love watching Bukayo Saka I love watching Martin Odegaard Zaha Michael Olise you know there's so many technically gifted footballers playing on on this in this game with the away sides the supposed outsider looking to come and bring the game to the hosts so it should be a great game to watch for those tuning in on Monday night Steve what are you thinking I'm thinking tight game um, Arsenal improved defensively Palace not having many shots on target currently um, I think uh, I'll be back in both teams to score no really yeah, yeah, I think I'm, uh, very boring, just like me. But I think it's going to be a low-scoring fair. So that's where I'm going to. That's, uh, that's where I'm going to put my uh, my investment. What a lovely upbeat way to end the podcast as well. Fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> please I've just got enough time. Please come Sorry, back Jeff. again next Sorry. week, Ian. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've just got enough time to remind everyone to sign up to the Athletic and, of course, benefit from the insight and some of the best football writers in the business for just three pounds and thirty-three pence a month. Head to theathletic.com forward slash football pod. Thanks to Stephen George. Thank you for having me this week as well. I think I got away with only forty-seven references to Manchester United's relative. <laughs> up and down start to this new Premier League season and of course thank you everyone at home for listening as well remember as always to hit the subscribe button so you never miss one of our shows and Mark Chapman David Ornstein and co are back on this feed on Monday you've been listening to the Athletic Football Podcast have a great weekend The Athletic